0: Hi, I'm Emu Shalev, and this is A Book Like No Other. A Book Like No Other is a product of Aleph Beta made possible through the generous support of Shari and Nathan Lindenbaum. We ended last episode teasing you about a mystery third text, an epilogue to the Makalel that would help us see the moral of the story. And we're going to get there. But first... One of the key ideas behind this podcast is that Torah can take you to unexpected places. And that's kind of what happened when Rabbi Forman and I sat down to learn again. See, before we could get to the mystery new text, I shared a thought with Rabbi Forman and that thought sparked a conversation. And that conversation, it's a bit more speculative, a bit more freewheeling than usual. And honestly, we didn't expect to leave it in the podcast. But what happened is that it opened up for us so many new layers of meaning that we realized We also couldn't leave it out. And at the heart of this conversation, what it's really about is blasphemy. You know, I think for many of us, blasphemy is so instinctively offensive that we don't stop to question what it really is or why it's wrong. But the more we studied the Macaulay, the more these questions seemed really critical. Is the great evil of blasphemy just getting angry, really angry, at God? I knew there had to be more to it than that, but what that more was felt elusive. And that felt like a problem. How are we supposed to understand the Makalel's punishment, why he was executed, if we didn't really understand his sin? We raised some of these questions in earlier episodes, but for the first time, I thought I'd found a clue, a way of addressing them. And that's what I wanted to run by Rabbi Foreman. This clue that I thought I found, it had to do with a connection we saw last time, how both Moshe in Exodus and the Makalel in Leviticus Use the name of God. In the case of the Mechalel, he uses God's name when he curses God. Remember, that's what cursing is. It's so mind-bending to think of, but that's what it is. Blasphemy means turning God's name against God. Meanwhile, we saw that according to the sages, Moshe uses the name of God to kill an Egyptian, which is mind-bending, but a little bit differently. How does God's name all of a sudden kill someone? Rabbi Foreman suggested at the time that using God's name in this case, something like standing up for God's moral vision, you know, embodying and channeling God's justice. So what was on my mind, the thought I shared with Rabbi Foreman, and what ended up sparking this whole larger conversation I'm about to play for you was this. What if the Mikalel is using God's name in the exact same way as Moshe? And that's the problem with blasphemy. Let's jump in, and you'll see what I mean. what i'm picturing when moshe goes out of the palace and the first thing he sees is injustice and he pronounces god's name as if to say this shouldn't be right and and that you know incinerates an egyptian if that's true that that's what it means to invoke the name of god to to declare some justice in some way i do think that that is really interesting when it comes to the macabo because almost like a mirror it feels like the macabo is turning god's name of justice on god like he's saying mm. hey you, God, you're a bad God. You're not just. And, and something about that is, I don't know, not kosher or uh, extreme. It, it's well, a, here's the
1: interesting thing. Can you imagine a kosher example of just that in the Torah? I can. When in the Torah did it actually happen? It's Abraham. Can you imagine a better example of that than saying to God, you know, Chalilolach <laughs> ma'asot kadavar La la'amit in Russia? It would be profane of you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous along with the wicked. Chalilalah mm-hmm. <laughs> would be profane of you. mishpat, <laughs> the judge of the whole world can't do justice. And Abraham got celebrated for that, seemingly, yes. right? It's sort of God invited that as a possibility.
0: By bringing Abraham into the picture, Rabbi Foreman was throwing a wrench into my theory. Blasphemy couldn't simply mean judging God against God's own standards, because... That's exactly what Abraham seems to do back in Genesis, when he questions God's plan to destroy the city of stone. And certainly, Abraham is not stoned for doing that. But Rabbi Foreman wasn't rejecting my theory entirely. Instead, he was making an important distinction about how we might judge God, a decision that would get to the heart of what he saw as the evil
1: of cursing. So I think that there's a very fine line between the version of this that can be wonderful and the version of it that can be terrible. And to me, it has to do with slamming the door. Mm -hmm. When Abraham said that, he didn't slam the door. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, he's interacting with the divine. And I think that's what you mean by slamming the door, right? Like he's beseeching God. He's even angry, seems like. But he's still asking God for an explanation. He's like, you're the just one. Aren't you going to be just?
1: Right, I think that's the whole point. I think that, that in a way, what... What you do when you use the name of God against God and curse God is you're not actually having a dialogue with God. You're not actually relating to him. You're basically just saying, here's how I'm leaving you behind. Even when you curse anybody, what sort of emotion is raging through me as I curse them? Typically anger. And even more, get the heck out of my life. Mm -hmm. In other words, cursing someone is basically your way of saying, I'm done with you now. Yeah. You curse someone and you slam the door.
0: Would that I could erase you. Yeah.
1: Would that I could erase you. So perhaps
0: the difference between Abraham and the Macalel was that Abraham made an initial assessment. Hey, God, this doesn't seem just. Can we talk about it? While the Macalel made a final judgment. God, case closed. You failed. I'm done with you. Slamming the door on God, as by Foreman put it, as if that could erase God. Almost like the Macalel's blasphemy was his attempt to sentence God to death or the closest thing to death when you're dealing with a divine being. That might sound dramatic, but it wasn't coming out of nowhere. Remember, after the Mikael curses God and is brought to Moshe, Moshe turns to God for guidance. God tells him that the punishment for blasphemy is stoning. But then God goes on to give the punishment for a few other crimes. And back when we first read the story, we'd noticed how odd that is. Why does God bring in these laws that have nothing to do with the case at hand? Rabbi Foreman thought that perhaps couching blasphemy among these seemingly unrelated laws actually told us a lot about the nature of blasphemy itself.
1: If you have all these laws, A, cursing God, B, striking a person and killing him, C, striking an animal and killing the animal, D, striking a person and maiming him, and let's just play our little game, which one of these things is not like the other.
0: I mean, the one that, that is most not like the other seems like the cursing.
1: Yeah, one that's most likely like the other is the one that is actually the subject of the yeah. whole discussion, right? So, what's that doing as the outlier? Yeah. Seemingly, you know, generally speaking, when the Torah plays this little game with you, which one of these things is not like the other, the answer is that it
0: is like the other.
1: The outlier isn't yeah. an outlier, it is like the others. So, what that would lead us to believe is that violence can be achieved through the mouth as well, through the yeah. tongue as well. There's something violent about cursing God, and that really is its sin, mm-hmm. right? With a human being, I can be violent against your body. With God, all he's got is a name in this world. I have to be violent against that. So it's it's the slam the door kind of violence, but it's the way that a human being is violent with God. Seeing curses as a type of violence
0: was a paradigm shift for me. You know, throughout our learning, we'd been struggling to understand why God isn't more sympathetic to the Makalo. Doesn't the Michalel have the right to get angry given what he'd went through? But I think most of us would agree, in most circumstances, it's one thing to get angry, but it's a wholly other thing to lash out in violence. Violence is never okay. Violence demands a strong response. Which isn't to say that God's punishment no longer seemed harsh or in tension with the sympathy that I felt for the Makalel, but by placing the prohibition against blasphemy in the context of the prohibitions against violence, the Torah did seem to be saying, don't underestimate the severity of this crime. But here was my problem with this idea. You can't really do violence against God. You just can't. So, symbolically, yeah, there was something rich in this analogy between cursing and violence. But practically, what real threat did the McCallell pose? And then I noticed something. The violence in this story wasn't just symbolic. And it wasn't just against God. This just popped out to me, maybe it's obvious to you and everyone else, but this person who is cursing, he was struggling with somebody else. He was fighting with somebody else. It's mixed together, He's hitting someone else and he's cursing God. Um, Not sure what to to make of that.
1: I, I think that somebody who feels completely displaced in the world, like they have no place, if they choose to work that out with violence, that violence can ex- easily express itself indiscriminately. There's something about anger, which is almost by nature indiscriminate. Think about the various different Hebrew words for anger, right? Chara uh, af, right? Charon um, af. The language has to do with fire or the language has to do with transgressiveness, like vayit uh, aber, and God became angry at me. Yeah,
0: Evra, Right,
1: and... It's interesting that there's something inherently transgressive about anger. Anger is not the kind of thing that is, it's like fire. It's not very easily controlled. It starts somewhere and it goes to all sorts of other places. And so if you have somebody who's consumed with anger by a sense of, a deep sense of having no place in the world, I think this is the Torah's warning that that is somebody who can really upset the apple cart and and kind of destroying society. That anger is going to come out against animal. It's going to come out against man. It's going to come out against God, but it's going to come out somewhere or everywhere surprising. And it's almost as if society has to defend itself by taking this person out of society and by killing them. But it's almost a self-preservation thing for society.
0: We'd gone from blasphemy as slamming the door on God to blasphemy as violence against God. But now Rabbi Foreman was adding another layer. Seen within the larger context of the Makalel story, his displacement, his fight with another human, it seemed like the Torah was presenting blasphemy as part and parcel of a wider social problem, the danger of unchecked aggression, even when the roots of that aggression may be justified. Now, each of these evolutions deepened my sense of what blasphemy was and of the moral problems the Torah was wrestling with in this story. I saw that it wasn't just a question of, is the Makalil a bad guy, like the text paints him out to be, or a sympathetic figure, like the Medrash seems to present him? Maybe Tex and Medrash together were raising a much more complex question, a question that society is still divided over today. How do you balance sympathy with security when those who have been hurt hurt others in return? But our deep dive into blasphemy wasn't done yet, I still had Moshe on my mind and the way he used God's name to evoke God's judgment, which seemed to imply, at the heart of cursing, at the core of all this violence and rage, was using God's name, evoking God's judgment against God. And to me, that seemed to have its own set of implications for why the Mechalil was punished. Maybe his death wasn't just a protective social necessity. Maybe it was the inevitable outcome of what he himself wanted. It seems like the Makala is declaring that justice himself, that is the name of God. Justice himself is unjust. That is an undoing, right? That is the ultimate slamming the door because it it's, how could you do that? How could, it's not, I'm not even saying like, how could you do that? That's an awful thing to do. It's a paradox. How can you invoke the name of justice in saying something is unjust? It breaks everything. It, it shatters the name of God. It just creates a rupture in like time, space, fabric, like, and so you you lose your place, right?
1: So in other words, if I understand you correctly, cursing God, you're suggesting, is that I'm trying to wield the power of God as if I am an agent of God, but I'm using it paradoxically to cut God out of the world. Almost as if to say, we need a new God now. and It should be me. It's me. <laughs> and it should be me. Yeah. Because you can't be trusted, and I'm going to destroy you with this great power of uh, divinity, right, which just happens to be your own name. Yeah, but, but
0: if we followed through your wish, which is, fine, let's delete God, what would happen to you? Like if you just right. got into the source code and said, delete God, what would happen to you? Right,
1: you'd go away too.
0: Yeah, you'd be deleted. And that's what it feels like what's happening in these verses is someone who tries to delete the life of someone else, they get deleted. Someone who tries to take out the tooth of someone You get, your tooth gets taken. Like, it's Mm. this grand mirror. Yeah. Like, you know what's interesting? The sages say, no, 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 no. The Torah doesn't mean an eye for an eye. It means the value of an eye for an eye. You know, if you poke out someone's eye, we're not going to poke out your eye. Well, then why did the Torah write it that way? And I can maybe now see a reason why is because if you're going to take the position of God and declare you don't deserve your eye anymore or I'm going to punch out your tooth, right? Well, the Torah then holds up the mirror and says, you're taking the position of God and deciding who who gets to keep their eyes and who doesn't. You know what? Whatever you do to others, we're going to do unto you. Because you're you're not God, right? You cannot take that position. And, and it feels like it's the same idea of like, how could you curse God? God is not other. God is everything. God is the creator. In retrospect, I was really making two related points. One was that if cursing was judging God as unfit for his position, well, if you believe that God that justice itself is unjust, then you're essentially undermining all of existence, including your own. It's like pulling the rug out from under reality. And so, as painful as the blasphemer's death is, from this angle, it also seemed like maybe the Torah's way of playing out for us the natural consequences of the Makalel's own worldview. But the other related point I was seeing was that taking justice into our own hands in general, whether against God or against another human, is a way of flirting with playing God, especially committing violence, which is a judgment against someone. Your life is not valuable. Your body is not sacred. Isn't that kind of like playing God? And God's response to these verses is to hold a mirror up, almost as if to say, okay, if you were God and that's what you decree, let me show you what it's like to live in that world. All of this had unfolded from looking at how Moshe used God's name and now, Rabbi Forman took a step back to compare Moshe and the Makalil once more. After all, Moshe did also commit an act of violence. He killed the Egyptian. Though in Moshe's case, it's an act of violence that was in defense of someone helpless. An act of violence that sits precariously on the fence between playing God and serving him.
1: So I guess what you're saying is, is that what Moshe was doing was using the power of divinity, but using it to affirm the sanctity of human life when he kills the Ishmitzri. So even though there's something dangerous about saying, hey, I see myself as a representative of God in this vision or I feel that God's own morality is inspiring that, but if it's used to uphold the sanctity of human life, that is at least a constructive aim. Yeah, but the, the most destructive of all possible aims would be to, to channel... The power of divinity against God himself, not seeking to dialogue with God, but seeking to utterly destroy something that's incompatible with it. In other words, the idea of using the Shema Meforash against someone is to use God's name in the face of something that's utterly incompatible with it to cause it to dissolve. That's the yes. definition, that's that's the function. And Moshe is doing that, and then yeah. Makal is doing that, but doing it against God which becomes paradoxical and self-destructive and destroys the system, yes. and hence he himself is destroyed, almost as yes. if like he's short circuiting himself. Interesting.
0: So we'd come to the end of our detour into blasphemy. The Mechalel's severe punishment, the inclusion of the laws of violence in Leviticus, and the parallel with Moshe were all pushing us to check our sympathy for the Mechalel and give serious consideration to the social, moral, and even metaphysical risks that his actions, blasphemy, and violence embodied. And by doing that, it seemed we'd come to at least part of that elusive moral to this story that we'd been after. But it couldn't be all of it. Remember, we still had Moshe's role in this story to make sense of. He didn't take the Makalel in before the Makalel curses, when the Makalil was just an innocent outsider. So we still had to ask, what are we supposed to learn from Moshe's role in all this? And how do all these pieces, Moshe's coldness, the Makalel's violence, and playing God, how do they all fit together? And that question brings us back to our epilogue. The mystery third text that Rabbi Foreman promised was the final chapter in the epic drama of Moshe and the Mikhail.
1: The story of the Mikhail is not a happy story. There's nothing happy about it. And this epilogue isn't is isn't a happy story either. It's a story of the idol of Micah. And I want to thank uh, Rabbi Avram Kowalski, who years ago alerted me to some of the resonances in the story of Pesel Micha, the idol of Micah, and how it resonates with this story.
0: Man, Rabbi Foreman sure knows how to sell a story, right? Nothing happy here, folks. But okay, at least the wait is over. Pesel Micha, the idol of Micha. That's our epilogue. So let me just give you the context for this story, and then we'll jump into reading the text together and seeing what it has to do with the Makalo and Moshe. The story of the idol of Micha is found in Judges chapter 17. This is a couple of decades after Joshua and the people have conquered the land of Israel, but still before the establishment of a king. There's no real central leadership. It's a chaotic time, a violent time, a time when the ideals that Moshe lived for were nearly forgotten. So it's against this backdrop that we're suddenly told about this man, Michah, and his unnamed mother.
1: So there's this man from Hara Fraishon Mikhaya, and his name is Micha. and the story begins with this really interesting interaction he has with his mom, Vayom He says to his mother, "Elaf you remember that eleven hundred talents of silver that was taken from you, seemingly stolen from you, Vaat Alit, and you cursed someone, amart right? and I heard you curse." So here's a story that actually begins with cursing. There's a mom who cursed the thief, whoever it is that stole these eleven hundred talents of silver. She cursed.
0: What is interesting to me again there is the the function of curses. Like curses are what you do when you feel the world has not been just. So you cry out this curse so that everybody gets their just desserts,
1: right? That's right. Here I am without this eleven hundred talents of silver. Right, the world did me wrong. And so she curses. Who did she curse? Unbeknownst to her, she cursed her own son, as we'll see uh, as the verses continue. <laughs> that money, I have it. I am the thief, I am the one who took it from you. And what's mother's response? Baruch Blessed be you, O child, to God. So imu, how do you take the mother's response? What does she mean when she says that?
0: Uh, she's undoing her curse
1: seemingly she's undoing her curse. So put yourself into mom's shoes for a moment. What are you thinking, mom, at this moment that you hear your child saying this?
0: Uh, if I'm playing it in slow motion, I guess you know my, my face goes white, my heart skips a beat. like what have I done? I was picturing some you know uh, guy in black and white shirt with a black ski cap or whatever it is, like a robber, right. a bad guy. But it, it, it was my own son all along, and I only want great things from my son. I need to undo this curse immediately.
1: Right. But the question that's left for the reader is, does that work? Right. Do you get to undo a curse that way? You know, back when I was a kid, there was always this possibility that you could take back a chess move even after your hand was no longer on the piece, You know, we always think that we can take back things. The question is, can you take back a curse? So this is one of the questions that sort of haunts the story.
0: But this question, can you take back a curse? It haunts the McCallell story too. I mean, if you think about the conversation we just had about blasphemy, in a way, what we were implicitly asking the whole time was, why couldn't the McCallell have taken back his curse? The sense in that story is that he couldn't. No matter what actions led up to it, his blasphemy was a point of no return. But I would never have framed the Makalel struggle that way before reading these verses in Judges. So already, this epilogue, as a like liked to call the story of Pesalmicha, resonated with the story of the Makalel in an interesting way. But a basic plot point, like cursing, which is all over Tanakh, does not a deep intertextual link make. So what was it that our Foreman saw in Pesalmicha? that really made it such a key part of the broader Mekalel narrative. We'll get there. But in the meantime, our thematic connection was about to get even more interesting.
1: So, so the good son goes and he returns the 1100 talents of silver to his mom. At which point, mom says, Well, I already did something with this money. I actually consecrated it. So you think, oh, that's very virtuous of you. You consecrated it. You gave it to the temple. What would you give it to? <laughs> so uh, I consecrated this to God, La Hashem, to God, Miadi from my hands, Livni, with respect to my son, La Asot to make a molten idol. Now, it seems like there's something weird about what she's doing. What in the world is she doing? She's consecrating this money, specifically Lashem. It's one thing if she is an idolatress and she consecrates this to an idol, but she consecrates it to God in order to do what? To make a Pesel amasecha, a molten image. And I don't know, but there's something so paradoxical about what she's doing, about consecrating this money to God to make an idol, which stands for the very opposite of God, that it almost evoked what you were just saying a few minutes ago, Emu, This notion of cursing being something paradoxical. It's almost like here's this mother who curses, and the next thing she does is this crazy paradoxical thing. She consecrates something, which is a direct unconsecration, but using the word consecration of that money at the same time.
0: It gets worse in the very next the very next verse.
1: How does it get even worse? The story would seemingly could not get any worse. So then, what the son does is he returns the money to his mother, but imo Mataim kesef. So mother takes out two hundred of it, and gives it to a silversmith and makes a molten image out of it. So last sentence, she consecrated all the money, but now she takes her two hundred talents, and that's going to be the idol, leaving us with the distinct yeah. impression that she's stealing the other nine hundred from. The consecrated estate.
0: Yeah, so that's weirdness number one. I thought it was eleven hundred that was supposed to be donated. It ends up being two hundred. Weirdness number two is you know if you're consecrating it, it should probably go to the temple, but it's not going to the temple. It's it's going to an idol, which is a, a, a religious object that I have ownership over, right? If you're consecrating, it's almost like you're you're giving it up even the 200 she is supposedly giving up is going to be in her domain or her son's domain, ultimately.
1: Yeah, it's like a shell game with the money.
0: Yeah. And if this were straightforward, you'd donate it to God and you'd be done. But what you're uh, illustrating is that they're they're playing a game here.
1: Yep. And, that there, and something paradoxical about the game, almost this whole notion of cursing we were talking before, is marshalling the power of God to undo God. Another way of mm-hmm. marshalling the power of God to undo God is to go and consecrate something to God so that it can become an idol.
0: and Right, and make make your own God.
1: (laughs) Make your own God. And by the way, that's what happens. Not only does she make her own God, but where does the God end up staying? Michayahu. She then gives it to her son. And it's like, here, Bubla, here's a little gift for you from me. Let this always stay in your domain that is itself a paradox, because a holy thing, you'd think, is not yours. It's God. It's transcendent. But no, this is a holy thing. That, As you say, it's an idol that you control that's yours. So what happens? Micha goes and plays this for spades. He becomes the little priest. He makes himself a little, little idol synagogue, and he makes himself some nice outfits to worship the idol with. He anoints one of his children to be a priest to the family business.
0: Oh, he learns from mom,
1: right? Learns from mom. So now mom's in on it. Micha's in on it, and grandson is the is the great Cohen.
0: And we're just from there from the tribe of Ephraim. Um yep. So not a priestly family, and yet they consecrate their own priest.
1: Yep. So Bayomi mahem, and meanwhile in those days, Ain Malach BIsrael, there was no king in Israel everybody did his own thing. And all of this is an example of people really doing their own thing as much as that thing is folly. So
0: in the name of giving to God, this mother-son duo find a way to keep all the control and wealth for themselves. Again, a very interesting resonance with the Mikalel and the idea that blasphemy is also a grab at God's power in God's name. But still not an undeniable link. That was coming next.
1: So now we get introduced to a new character in this mess. There was a lad. And the lad came from Bethlehem in the tribe of Yehuda. But it's not so simple. He's mi mishpachat He's from a family of Judahites. But v'hu levi. His actual tribal affiliation is that he is a levi. So, Emu, what does that remind you of in our Vayikra stories? A-
0: Conflicted identity.
1: Conflicted identity. And who Garsham was? He's a Gair. A a Gair. He was a sojourner in Beit Lachem. Now, why is he a sojourner in Beit Lachem? Why can't he just live in Beit Lachem? Answer is even though he's from the family of Yehuda, must be the Yehuda people said, like, you know, you realize that you don't really have a place here because presumably, maybe, mixed marriage, tribal affiliation goes after dad. His dad's probably a Levite, which is why he's a Levi, who comes from a Mishpacha, a family of Yehuda, but was just sojourning in Yehuda. So Vayelechayish so the guy, the Levi, he left the city, Nibet Beitlachem Yehuda, Lagur to find another place. And he's kind of homeless, looking for a place that he can pitch his tent for a while. And wouldn't you know it, Vayavo Harha Ephraim at Beit Micha, he came to the mountain of Ephraim, and he comes upon Micha's house, La Dracho. So Vayamala Micha. So Micha says to him, My in Tavo, where are you coming from? Yamari love. And he says, Levi Anochi, I'm a Levi. I come from Beit Lachem in the tribe of Judah. Vanok Icholech lagur but I'm going to try to find some place to live. So Micha says, Shva Imadi, why don't you stay with me for a while? Hmm. You you can hang out with me. And, and this is really odd. You can be with me, and you can be what? You can be my father. You can be my Kohen. I'll pay you 10 talents of silver for your days.
0: And he had a lot of leftover silver. so
1: <laughs> That's right. And I'll give you some clothes. I'll give you food. And so the Levi thought, that would be a really good idea.
0: Okay, so we have this new character, this Levite, but he's not a pure Levite. He's of mixed lineage, and that's left him displaced. And this displaced mixed lineage Levite encounters a stranger named Micha, who welcomes him in. You see it, right? This Levite fellow, he's our Moshe slash character, our outsider. By the way, Moshe was also from the tribe of Levi. And Micha, he's our Yitro. And I could just imagine where this was going. No doubt Rabbi Foreman was about to show me some parallel language in the text that would cement the link.
1: Micha says, Shva Imadi, stay with me for a while. Hmm. Does that remind you of anything elsewhere in the Chumash? Who says, Shva Imadi, stay with me a while?
0: Isn't that what Yitra says?
1: It's not actually Yitra.
0: Oh, I guess I didn't see where this was going.
1: Believe it or not, that's Lavan welcoming in Yaakov. Shva oh, okay. Imadi. And Lavan, a little bit malevolent father in law, right, basically ends up enslaving him. So, that was weird.
0: Why was Lavan language showing up here? Like Herbiformon said, Lavan was Jacob's father-in-law. He's infamous for the tricks that he played on Jacob, including making Jacob work seven years to marry his daughter Rachel, and then marrying him off to the other daughter Leah, and making Jacob work another seven years to actually marry Rachel. Yeah, Lavan's that one. If there's any father-in-law who's the antithesis to the welcoming, really-there-for-you Yitro, it was Lavan. So, hold on to that thought. But guess what? I wasn't totally wrong. There were also resonances to Yitro here. And it's not just that Micha was offering asylum to this mixed-lineage Levite guest. To show them to me, Rabbi Forman brought my attention back to what Micha said to the Levite when he took him in. Here's the verse. Shva imadi, La'av le'av u'l'chohen. Stay with me and be a father and a priest
1: to me. Notice the difference in roles here. You should be like a father to me, but you should also be like a cohen to me. What other person had a relationship with someone that they were like an av and like a cohen at the same time?
0: Oh, that feels like Moshe Yitro. That
1: feels like Moshe Yitro. Moshe's relationship to Yitro, he's an av and he's a cohen, right?
0: Yitro was the high priest of Midian and Moshe's father-in-law. So Yitro is a priest and a father-esque figure in Exodus. And now Micha is asking the Levi, to be a priest and a father to him, here in Judges. But the connections get even better.
1: The hammer comes down in the next verse. And the Levi was just all too happy to go and hang out with this guy. Now, there's only one other time in Tanakh that you have the language Vayo'el X la at-Y. And X was all too happy. To stay with why and it is. There's your corner piece. There's your corner piece. That is Moshe in Yitro's household. It's almost as if there's a latter day Yitro here, right? And the latter day Yitro is Micha.
0: And if you have any doubt that Micha is being cast as a latter day Yitro, there was more.
1: The Levi goes, hangs out with Micha, and what does Micha say? Vayomer Micha, and Micha says, "Ata Yadati. Now I know ki Hashemli." That God will be good to me, kihayeli because I managed to find a levy, a real life levy, to be my Kohen. I have a veneer of legitimacy. But that language is really chilling. Atayadati. yadati. So, where do you have in the Torah Ata Yadati? Someone who rejoices and says, Now I know Kiyeti Vashemli, and God has been good. So remember, after right, after the crossing of the sea. Yitro comes to visit Moshe. Let's actually open our Shmot to that moment where Moshe greets Yitro.
0: We're heading to Exodus chapter 18, verse 7.
1: So Yitro comes, Bonavishto and Moshe, to the desert. Moshe comes out to greet him, tells Yitro about how God had saved them. And Yitro rejoices and he says, Baruch Hashem, blessed is God who saved you from the hands of Egypt. And he then says the following words in verse 11: Atayadati, now I know, Kigadol Hashem Nikola Elohim, Kibatavar Now I know that God is greater than any other gods because the Egyptians have met the same fate that they sought to impose upon the Israelites. So that language, Yadati, together with great rejoicing, right, is the same language which we're finding here. And also, what was he so happy about? Yitro was so happy about all the good things that God had done. And over here, Atayadati, now I know, Kiyetiv Hashemeli.
0: Which means God will be good to me. Rabbi Forman's pointing out that not only do Micha and Yitro both say, Atayadati, now I know, but what they know is related to the Tov, the good that comes from God. Put that together with the fact that when Moshe stays with Yitro, we're told Va'yoel Moshe la'shevet et ha'ish, Moshe was happy to stay with the man. And the only other time in Tanakh we have a similar phrase is here, when the half Levi stays with Micha and we're told Va'yoel ha'Levi la'shevet et ha'ish. the Levite was happy to stay with the man.
1: The Yitro resonances in the story are profound indeed.
0: Profound, yes. But also strange, no? Doesn't something feel off to you? Yitro was such a kind-hearted man. Micha, Don't forget, he's the man who stole from his own mother and set up an idolatrous temple in God's name and whose invitation to the Levite also parrots nefarious Lavan. And there was also this. The rest of the verse we were looking at earlier, halevi at the Levite agreed to stay with the man, that's the phrase that parallels Yitro. But then the verse goes on. And the youth became like one of his own sons. The youth seems to refer to the Levi. So the Levi became like one of Micha's sons? But remember, Micha had just asked the Levi to be like his father. There's something dark about this. Like He said, oh, you'll be like a dad and a priest for me, but this guy ends up being like one of his kids. Which is yes. sweet, but also not the right relationship you're supposed to have with your religious right. figure, so, and he's looking for a dad, and he gets a kid. Like That, that is weird.
1: Right. So, is actually a, an inversion of what he said before. First, you you're going to be like my father in a coin. Now, you're going to be like one of my children, right? It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a real mixed-up kind of thing, right? There's something yep. something problematic about it.
0: Yep. Let's get a therapist in here. So was Micha being a Yitro for this levy a good thing or not? Rabbi Foreman wasn't ready for that question yet. Before we could step back and figure out what it all meant, there was still more story to read and more evidence to gather.
1: Verse 1 of the next chapter in the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Who do we meet but the Danites? Oh, haven't heard about them for a while. Turns out that they have no place to be. They were the last tribe to get their tribal appropriation in the actual land.
0: Talk about poetic justice. Remember, the Makalo's mother was from Dan. They were the tribe that wouldn't accept the Makalo and left him without a place. And now they don't have a place. So let's add that to our evidence list and on with the story. The Danites are wandering around.
1: And they're wandering around wandering around so bayish lekhubenidan bimishpachtam chamisha nashim. so bneidan decides it would be a great idea to send 5 people laragel at the arats to try to spy out land that they could have some sort of temporary place to be and who did they come to but mount ephraim ad beit micha they ended up showing at micha's house too so now you've got a real party because Hema in Beit Micha veHema Ikiru Yikiru at Kolanar, HaLevi. And they, from Dan, they recognized the voice of this Levi. Strangely enough, they say, we, we know you, Mr. Levi. Mi Aviyah Halom, who brought you here? Now that word Halom, very unusual word in Tanakh. Where in Chumash do we have the word Halom?
0: Halom, Halom. Al-Tikrav Halom. Al-Tikrav Halom, don't come closer. So um, this is one of the first things that God says to Moshe at the burning bush.
1: Right, which is the story right after Moshe meets Yitro. You see what's happening? It's as if we have a Moshe meets Yitro story here in the book of Shovtim, where there is a latter-day Moshe, a Levi, who encounters a latter-day Yitro, this Micha character. And right after that, you have the next story. What story is that? It's a Halom story. Almost as if we're at the burning bush now.
0: By the way, there's more than that. There's there's um, a coal, a voice, and vayasurusham. They turned there.
1: Oh, good. I hadn't even thought of that. Oh, that's a very good point. So there's a whole bunch of connections. Moshe hears a voice. Hear heima yikirat kolonar. They hear a voice. Vayasurusham. They turned to him. Moshe turned at the burning bush. Miya Moshe heard the words halam. It really, that does sound like another burning bush story.
0: Normally, This is the part where I'd go over all these connections more slowly so that they're really clear in your mind. But I'm gonna make an unusual editorial decision this time and skip that step. I invite you to open your Tanakh to Judges 18 and Exodus 3 and compare the verses there for yourself. I'd love to hear what else you find, but for our purposes, what's gonna be important is not the details of these connections, but the bigger picture. And that's what I wanna draw your attention to. It's like Judges is tracking Exodus. Yitro takes Moshe in, Micha takes the levi in. Then, Moshe encounters God at the burning bush, and now the levi, the Moshe character in our story here, encounters these Danites in a way that evokes the burning bush. And this pattern continues. Let's keep reading. So the Danites recognize the levi's voice, and they begin to ask him some questions.
1: Who brought you here? What are you even doing here? He says, Oh, Micha, he was really good to me. I've got this job here. I'm a Kohen. So the people from Dan say, Sha'al be'lohim. Do me a favor. If you're such a Kohen guy, um, if you have such an in into the transcendent world, they say to the Levi, Sha'alna be'lohim. Why don't you ask God, Veneda hatatzliach darkenu Ashanachnu are we ever going to find ourselves a place to be? So the Kohen, i.e. the Levi, says, L'chul Shalom, yeah, God's going to make you very, very successful. You're totally going to find a place to be.
0: L'chul Shalom is, is Yitro language.
1: That's true. That is Yitro language. Yeah. L'chul Shalom. He sends him off and says, go in peace.
0: It's right after the bush, before Moshe needs to go on, on his journey after
1: the bush. So you see what's happening. It's literally, you have the Yitro story, the bush story, the after-the-bush story. It's fascinating.
0: Fascinating, but confusing. That was becoming the mantra in my head. As I saw it, our reading so far has opened up three provocative paths that needed to be explored further. One was the connection with cursing from the beginning of the story. Could you undo a curse? And what to make of the way Micha and his mother's idolatry was paradoxically like blasphemy? The second was what to make of Micha taking in the levy? Was this a benevolent act like Yitro taking in Moshe? or a more malevolent act like Lavan taking in Jacob. And finally, three, the Levi seemed to be taking his role as Moshe and running with it. His story continued to trace the evolution of Moshe's story from Yitro's home to burning bush to returning to Egypt. Only there was something weird here too. Moshe's journey was from small time vigilante to full fledged steward of God. And the Levi's journey seemed to be in the opposite direction away from God into the service of idolatry. I was curious about each one of these paths and of course how they would all come together. But to get there we had to read the end of the story and it's an ending that does not disappoint. Here's what happens next. The Danites make a surprise attack on a city called Laish and they conquer it. Then they go back to Micha's temple and steal the idols. The Levi confronts them and they invite him to join them. well, they don't phrase it quite as politely.
1: Basically, they say, you're coming with us now, and you're going to be our Kohen. And they bring it to Laish, they end up destroying Laish, they end up de- destroying the city, and the Danites end up conquering this area. They name the place Dan, and, Dan, verse 30, eta pesel. they ended up setting up this Pesel, this idol. And now, what happens is one of the anonymous characters in the story gets revealed. The Levy, we never knew who the Levy was. He was just a Levy, but now we hear who he is at the very end of the story. By Yochim Lahem bnei the Yehonatan ben Gershom, ben Menashe, who Hayu hayukawanim lashevet adani ad yom glotaretz, he and his, his progeny ended up staying in this house of idolatry, being this Cohen in this house of idolatry for hundreds of years until exile came to the land. But who is this person? Yehonatan ben Gershom, the child of Gershom, then Menasha Menashe memnun shin Hey.
0: On my screen, there's a. it says memnun shin he, but the nun is elevated, almost as if the nun is trying to escape. And the the name would be Ben Gershom, Ben Moshe.
1: Ben Gershom, Ben Moshe. And Chazal come along, the sages say, in fact, the Levi was Yonatan, the grandson of Moshe, the child of Gershom, the child of Moshe. right? And this is who all this happened to. He ends up being this idolatrous priest for Don. And it's as if all the characters from the Mechalal have come back and there's this story of cursing and of the mother's tries to undo the curse, but the curse is not undone.
0: The chickens are all coming back to roost.
1: The chickens are all coming back to roast. There's this Yitro role. Yitro was the one who took in Moshe, who basically supported Moshe and allowed him to express whatever anger or, or vexation he had towards God in some sort of non-destructive way. The Makalel in Moshe's own day and age didn't have the benefit of a yitro. There was no yitro. And ultimately, Moshe's grandchild, according to Chazal, ends up being the protagonist in a story in which the grandchild becomes the wanderer, like the wanderer that approached Moshe, as if the the challenge of Moshe's own grandchild is without a positive yitro. Can you make it in life? What if there's a malevolent yitro in your life? What if the yitro that you meet is a micha-like guy who brings you in to idolatry? What then? It's this really forceful sense, I think, that when someone comes to you and they're desperate, they're dislocated, it's a moment you have to connect with them and to be a yitro for them. If you don't, and that person acts with abandon, Sure, he can be responsible for his actions. You're not directly responsible for those actions, because ultimately everyone is responsible for their own actions. But that doesn't mean that there's no din, that there's no, that there's no expectation for those whom you encounter that could have changed your path. And history will have its way when it comes to that.
0: It's such a, such a haunting story. One of the things I found so haunting was that the din, the judgment here, wasn't that Moshe's descendant should experience the same fate as the Mekalel. I think that's where I would have gone, right? You didn't take the Mekalel in, now your grandson won't be taken in. But the grandson, this slavey, Yehonatan, he is taken in. By Micha and then by the tribe of Dan, the very tribe that had in fact rejected the Mekalel. And it's through these relationships that Yehonatan goes from being a homeless outsider to being a respected priest and leader in his community. It just made it very clear. Yehonatan's story was a Moshe story, tracing the same path that Moshe took from outsider to leader. Just tragically, a version of that path polluted by the legacy of Moshe's mistake. But there was something else I found haunting too. It was just a little harder to articulate. And it's the nature of this polluted legacy. I mean, where in the story do you see Yehonatan, Moshe's grandson, acting anything like Moshe did towards the Makalo? It seemed to me that maybe there was a moment of this. I want to come back to a few verses here that are also really meaningful about how the people of Dun are so delighted with this priest that they come and they, they kidnap him. Yep. They don't really kidnap him. They say, you know, come with us. And he's like, no, I'm here with Micha. And they're like, yeah, but we're going to give you a much better job. What would you rather be? Would you rather be the priest for one man? Or would you rather be the priest for a whole tribe? And he's like, okay, yeah, this is, this is a good idea.
1: Yeah, sure, I'll take that. I'll, I'll go with you. It's almost if like all this latter-day Yitro is offering for this levy is just yeah. you know a little bit more money.
0: They, they offer him a bargain, and he's like, yeah, that's a great idea, good good calculus. I don't think any of us could imagine Moshe making the same decision, you know, being a priest for hire to the highest bidder. Of course not. But the cold calculation that Yehonatan, the Levite priest, uses to make this decision, I don't know, it felt like maybe it had its roots in Moshe's cold calculation toward the Makalo. But where Moshe's coldness was at least in the name of justice, his grandson's was in the name of cash. And that got me thinking back to the beginning of Micha's story, how he and his mother also did everything to hold on to their silver. And how that control of money was also entangled with the mother's desire, it seemed, to have control over justice, to be able to curse the thief who stole from her. It seemed like two threads in our story that you might think were opposites of each other, cold calculations and impassioned cursing. They share a common denominator. And that common denominator was desire for control. As I shared some of these thoughts with Rabbi Foreman, he connected the dots even more back to idolatry.
1: The whole notion of idolatry, the whole sin of idolatry might just be transcendence that's in your control. The whole notion of transcendence, the whole notion of worship of God is you're worshiping someone that isn't in your control. But the whole pull of idolatry is, but what if it could be? What if it could be in my control? And money is the stand-in for the transcendent thing. If you would interview the levy, the levy would say, sure, I'm in control. Look at me. I've built up my business. Boy, you know, I started with a little shtiebel in Micha's house. and Look at me now. I got myself a whole network. You know, I'm really making it big in this transcendent business. But ultimately, it's God who controls him, whereas it's God who's controlling history, and he's just a link in a much larger historical drama where uh, he's in anything but control.
0: Yeah. It really does feel like justice and um, and Zara and control. Like, it seems like those themes are, are, are bedfellows. And of course, the other bedfellow that fit right in with this group was blasphemy. It felt like we'd come full circle back to blasphemy as the attempt to judge God in the name of God. And now I could see another reason why Pesel Micha was very much the epilogue to the Mekalel. In both stories, it feels like there is a human wielding a judgment of what should and shouldn't be. Like, the Mekalel in the first place is the one deciding this world is unjust. And then in, in the Pesel Micha story, people are wielding God again. They're not wielding the name of God, they're actually wielding gods for their own gratification. And, and like everybody's wielding God, it feels like, a name or an idol.
1: Yeah, you might see idolatry as a further step along a road that begins with blasphemy. In other words, if blasphemy is using God's name against God, right? What is idolatry but using the idea of God to make God irrelevant?
0: With that, I'd felt we'd come to the moral we have been searching for. Beware the dark side of justice. Desire for justice often masks the desire for control, but human beings who desire too much control are wading into God's territory. And we are not God. And it's definitely not our place to judge him or to try to replace him. What we can do is care for each other. The way Yitro cared for Moshe. The way Moshe might have cared for the makalo It was a haunting lesson, to use one of my favorite words, but a powerful one. And I finally felt satisfied with where our journey had ended. But... Here's the funny thing. When we sat back to reflect on the last three episodes, it was Rabbi Foreman who was now the one with misgivings.
1: I can't help it, but the way I see the story is it's just the playing out of a very harsh din in the world, which is why I'm troubled by it. But that's that to me is where I land, which is troubling to me. I'm just being honest, that's where I land.
0: Rabbi Foreman's reaction made me realize that I was so enamored with the lesson that human beings are not God that I'd lost sight of what these stories were saying about God. Whatever reasons we may offer for the Mechalel's punishment or the stain on Moshe's legacy, both of these men met really harsh fates. And that's where our story just, it ends. And that seems to paint God as the exact type of cold, controlling judge that we're being warned not to emulate. So was that the moral of the story? That God is sort of saying, do as I say, but not as I do? Let me put this another way. The Makalel saga seemed to be about human trespass and divine punishment. The Mechalel, Moshe, everyone who acted badly faced retribution. This story is so dark. The moral is so dark. Like, where is the path to redemption? We talked about this downward spiral from desire for justice to blasphemy to idolatry, but where's the way out of that? These were the questions that I think were bothering our Foreman. He couldn't pretend, of course, that we saw anything different in these stories than we did. This was where the text had led us. But his instinct was telling him that there had to be more to this story, something even more meaningful in all of this than just a grim lesson about control and judgment. And the more we thought about it, our theory kinda did feel incomplete. For one, we'd shown how Moshe seemed to get his just desserts, but we never explained why Moshe made this terrible mistake in the first place. What was going on for him at that moment when he judged the Michalow? And there were some other questions from way back when we first read this Michalow story that we still hadn't answered. Like, why are we told that the people put the Michalow in jail? Why include that detail? And our very first question, why does this story show up in Leviticus, a book that has very, very few narratives? It feels totally out of place. And nothing we'd seen so far explains that. Clearly, we were missing something. We just didn't know yet what that was. Next time on A Book Like No Other, we head back to Leviticus to take a fresh look at the Makalel and notice some new intertextual connections, and once again, follow the Torah somewhere completely unexpected. A Book Like No Other is recorded by Rabbi David Foreman and me, Emu Shalev. Our producer is Tikva Hecht. Our managing producer is Adina Blaustein. Audio editing for this episode was done by Hilary Gutman. A Book Like No Other is a product of Aleph Beta and made possible through the very generous support of Shari and Nathan Lindenbaum. Thank you, Shari and Nathan. And thank you all for listening.